Some of you know that I, in, in July, I enjoyed the privilege of a two-week preaching gig in the Anglican Church of St. Bartholomew on the Isle of St. Barts, a, a tough assignment, as you can imagine. Uh, but while I was there, I realized I really didn't know anything about the history of the Caribbean, and so set about reading a book called Empire's Crossroads, basically a history of the Caribbean from Columbus to the present day, by a historian called Kerry Gibson. And in it, Interestingly, she writes this, referring to the early 1700s. She writes, Caribbean sugar changed the way the world ate and created untold wealth for plantation owners. The trade was larger and more exploitative than anything that had come before. Sugar money would pay for the Dutch master's paintings and build mighty mansions in Bristol. But sugar has no value to the human body. What was really being produced in the Caribbean was luxury. The foodstuff of kings now appeared on more humble tables. But while the European middle classes delighted in its sweetness, sugar produced nothing but bitterness for those to have forced to plant, harvest, and process it. By now the natives were mostly gone and white indentured servants free or departed. That left only one group, the imported Africans, to provide the free labor upon which so many of these islands would grow rich. We might think about the other Caribbean staples of tobacco and coffee and the rum derived from sugarcane, all as being unnecessary for the human body and all exacting great cost for those who produced uh, these inaptly named goods, while creating great wealth for those, of course, who controlled the trade. What is it about desire, about wanting stuff? What is it about desire that often leads to so much trouble? Think not just slavery, but addiction and debt and despair and feelings of inadequacy. And yes, it even leads to violence. Some theorists have proposed that we learn what we desire by imitating the desires of others. To quote French cultural critic René Girard, man is the creature who does not know what to desire and he turns to others in order to make up his mind. We desire what others desire because we imitate their desires. Lest this seem too theoretical and even boring, let's recognize that we see how this works a lot of the time. If you ever watched children playing, you might have seen little Freddy notice a toy at the bottom of the toy barrel that none of the other children seem to care about. And let's imagine uh, that it is something entirely ordinary. It's like a, a toy fire engine. Uh, or maybe a plastic train. The room, uh, the, the, the moment he start, Freddy starts enjoying this toy that everyone else was ignoring, suddenly the other children in the room decided it's exactly what they want to play with, and each of them goes after it, and open warfare breaks out, and the caregivers have to try and sort it out. In the adult world, caregivers cannot sort out the conflict. So in the words of theologian James Allison, Imitative desire leads to conflicts which are resolved by the group's spontaneous formation of unanimity over against some arbitrarily indicated other who is expelled and excluded and thereby produces a return to peace. In this way, humans create and sustain human order, social order. Allison further believes <clears throat> that it is divinely inspired happenings and texts that unveil uh, these, this un otherwise hidden mechanism 
by which we create scapegoats, thus making possible our move toward real peace, not based on sacrifice, not based on murder. Think Roman and Jewish religious authorities colluding to keep the peace by executing Jesus. So let's turn to John's Gospel and what appears to be yet another iteration of the bread of life theme of the sixth chapter, which can lead us feeling not just fed, but positively sated. There is something new going on this week that's not been an obvious part of the readings of the past two weeks. There are two words in Greek that mean to eat. <clears throat> the more common one has the meaning we would generally assign to eating, but the rare one in the New Testament is used no less than four times in, in, in today's reading. And it is a word used, uh, just translated to eat, but it's a word used to describe the audible noises that an animal makes when tearing into the flesh of another animal. Maybe we should, instead of saying eat, maybe we should say gnaw, <clears throat> or maybe we should say, <coughs> maybe we should say chew, a noise, a kind of noisy, even offensive way of eating. Unless you gnaw the flesh of the Son of Man, those who tear into my flesh and slurp my blood have eternal life. Why would John want a shocking uh, phrase? Why would John use this word, giving us kind of verbal slap in the face uh, when he uses it? Well, one suggestion is that we need to consider the cross before we rush to just seeing images of Holy Communion. There is something almost cannibalistic about this language and this image. And cannibalism is often associated with a kind of ritual or sacrificial violence. Indeed, early Christians were accused of cannibalism from time to time. Maybe we are being pointed by John to the idea that the victim here, who was in a sense consumed as a result of the authorities' desire for peace, now reveals an alternative from being governed by this cycle of violence flowing from desire, and let's not forget here sugar and coffee and tobacco and rum, and saying in a sense that we ingest an alternative and begin to actually become people of peace. So instead of mere communion that is brought about through the creation of scapegoats, a feeling of unity, we have something different. We are invited into holy communion, to take in in the most profound, maybe even audible way possible. Laura Ingersoll of RM Parish has sent me a story about a ministry <clears throat> among the homeless in San Francisco who experimented with giving a number of homeless people $500. There were no limits or demands except you can't spend it on drugs or alcohol. Basically <clears throat> attempting to avoid paternalism and just say, you make the choices, you decide how you want to spend this money. No other restriction on how it could be used. And among many wonderful stories as a result of this uh, imperfect experiment, but nevertheless wonderful stories, was one story in which a woman spent some of the money she was given on necessities, but also made a donation back to the organization. When the author pointed out there was no expectation she didn't have to do this with the money, she explained, I didn't do it for you. I did it for myself. And I'm doing it so I can once again feel the dignity of being able to support a cause that I believe.
our communal practice of generosity at St Albans so magnificently made manifest in our recent Hallelujah Homecoming Capital campaign is but one way we can contradict or fight back against our own unconscious uh, mimetic desires. True generosity is an antidote to such desire. When we're generous, we are demonstrably overcoming our fear of scarcity. We can do this both with our sustained and sustaining giving, creating a pattern of life that is focused toward this, this new possibility, this new humanity brought about in Jesus, but also with those more momentary responses, such as we might make with a mustard seed. We're currently taking a mustard seed offering in response to the crisis in Cuba. Perhaps now, when you hear the offertory sentence in the middle of a service of Holy Communion, you will recognize that being generous is part of our preparation for not mere communion, but Holy Communion, the communion of becoming one with the one who both shows and becomes the way of life, the one who becomes the way of life as we ingest or tear into or chew on what really matters, resisting the way of death and claiming for ourselves and for the world the way of abundant and eternal life. I offer this reading in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.